if you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn back with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Um, and while you're turning there, if you're a guest, this is week 7 in a um, short sermon series on what we're calling Devoted um, Characteristics of a Church-Centered Christian. And we've been looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as a model for us and what we should seek to emulate as these early Christians were devoted to the local church fellowship they were a part of in that day and what we can learn from them and how we can follow their example. Uh, In week one, we looked at how this church community was created through the preaching of the gospel and receiving that gospel by repentance and faith in Jesus. And those new believers were then baptized and added to that young church, and they began to devote themselves to several things. And these last several weeks, we've been exploring what those aspects of their devotion were. The first one was the apostles' teaching, The last several weeks, we have considered the fellowship, and this morning, we're going to pick up the second-to-last aspect of devotion, which is in chapter 2, verse 42, and then, Lord willing, next week, we'll wrap the series up with their final area of devotion. So, let's read chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 again, and then I will pray, and we will dive into our subject this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you once again for your word, and we ask that you would incline our hearts to it in these next moments together and not towards selfish gain. Banish from our mind any distraction. Hold our attention fast upon that which is life indeed. Um, We pray that you would open our eyes this morning, that we might behold wonderful things wonderful things in your word, and that you would unite our hearts before you to fear your name, and that you would satisfy us with what we see in your word this morning, that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. Thank you that you've given your word to us to serve our eternal and lasting joy. You have come to give us life and life abundantly. Point us into that abundant life this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question becomes is, what does devotion to the breaking of bread mean, and what does it actually look like in practice? Well, I think it might be interesting to begin by thinking about meals. Don't we love to eat? Why? Mike Cosper says, one of the most magical places in the world is the dinner table. I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason we enjoy gathering around a table and enjoying a meal together. In fact, Tim Chester said in his book, Meal, A Meal with Jesus, he said everything else, creation, redemption, mission, it's for this, that we might eat together in the presence of God. God created the world, Chester says, so that we might eat with him. We proclaim Christ in mission so that others might hear the invitation to join the feast. Creation, redemption, and mission all exist so that a big meal can take place. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. The Bible starts with sin entering the world through some food, taken in disobedience to God's command, and it ends around a table with the Lord Jesus serving his every tribe, tongue, nation, people in a meal, in a feast. So it's no, it should be 
no surprise to you that the church, as God's redeemed community, would be devoted to meals, devoted to the breaking of bread. But what's primarily in view in verse 42 when Luke writes to us about this early church community that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread? What do we mean by that phrase? Well, I think there are two things that are predominantly in view in this phrase, the breaking of bread, and it's especially in view in the book of Acts. So I want to prove this to you up front, and then we're just going to talk about how we live this out in our fellowship today. So, first of all, the term the breaking of bread in verse 32 is thought by most scholars to be a reference to the Lord's Supper, or at least a meal in, that was the church took together in which the Lord's Supper was a part of it. In fact, the key indicator that this is the case is the phrase, the breaking of bread. The word the is in the Greek. It's right before the word breaking of bread or the phrase breaking of bread, indicating a unique, special kind of breaking of bread. It was the breaking of bread. It was the Lord's Supper. However, in verse 46, we see another aspect of this breaking of bread that took place among these early Christians. If you would look at me, look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So this seems to be more informal. This seems to be an everyday occurrence where the new church Christians are gathering together in their homes. Yes, they're attending the temple courts together, but they're also breaking bread in their homes and sharing their food together. So that seems to be a reference to what we would call hospitality. Let's look at a couple of other references to breaking of bread in the, in the book of Acts. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and look together with me at verses 7 and verse 11 of that chapter. Acts 20, verse 7 says, on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection, the day on which the church gathers, when we were gathered together, because that's when the church gathers together, to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now skip down to verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. Now, this, seems, this is probably a reference to Paul joining this church for the celebration of the Lord's Supper and probably a larger meal in its context. Um, it's probably not just a normal fellowship meal because it's occurring, Luke says, on the first day of the week when the church was gathered together. But we see this more in that world. While that might be the more formal aspect of taking the Lord's Supper together as a church, I want you to look at Acts 27, verse 35 where I think we see a more general, informal breaking of bread in the form of hospitality. Acts 27 and verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. Now let's keep reading, because that sounds like the Lord's Supper, but let's keep reading. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, you need to observe that the instance in which Luke is describing what took place was when Paul and many others were caught in a devastating storm. 
So breaking bread here refers to all the ship's passengers eating something before they struck shore. This is certainly not a communion service. But Paul is giving thanks for the food that they are receiving, and he is sharing it with the other passengers. So I think we can, we can say quite safely that we're on solid biblical exegetical ground here when we talk about the phrase breaking of bread, not just as a reference to the Lord's Supper, but also as a reference to meals that Christians would eat together and even meals that would just take place in general among people that maybe weren't even believers. So breaking bread is then a reference to the Lord's Supper and a reference to what I will call in the sermon hospitality. And so those are the two aspects that we're going to look at. If we're going to be devoted to what the early church was devoted to, then we must be devoted to the breaking of bread. And if we're going to be devoted to the breaking of bread, that means we're going to be devoted to observing the Lord's Supper together and practicing hospitality as a church community. So let's take those one at a time this morning. Number one, devoted to the Lord's Supper. Often, and perhaps chiefly in the New Testament, the phrase, the breaking of bread, refers to the Lord's Supper, even though, as I've argued, it's not exclusive to that. I would say it is a primary uh, example of breaking of bread that the New Testament gives us. Now, where does the Lord's Supper come from? Well, it comes from the Lord, Jesus, but it, it even predates that. Remember, the Lord's Supper has its roots in the Jewish celebration of Passover, which is where God saved his people out of Egyptian slavery and bondage through the blood of a sacrifice. They were freed from slavery and made God's own people. And on the night before that great act of deliverance, rescue, and salvation, he gave them a meal called Passover that they would continually celebrate. And this meal defined them as the people of God. No one else could celebrate it but God's covenant people. And by retelling the story of their salvation, this meal brought God's past act of deliverance continually into the present experience of his people. It told every Israelite that they had been a slave and that their God is a God who rescues. Now, it should come as no surprise to you that Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, ate this Passover meal with his disciples. But he transforms its significance in the process. Remember Matthew chapter 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave to the disciples and said something that to their ears would have been shocking and borderline unintelligible. This is my body. Now, if you think about this, why would Jesus institute this Passover celebration or this Lord's Supper celebration during the Passover? Because what Jesus is getting ready to do is rescue his people. And he's going to do it by offering a sacrifice, spilling blood, so that his people can be brought out of slavery. Remember this, on the cross, God saved a people for himself Through the blood of Jesus' sacrifice, he freed us from sin and slavery and made us his own, just like the Israelites of old. On the night before that great act of deliverance, Jesus gave them a meal 
just like God gave the Israelites the meal that they would continually celebrate, that would define them as the people of God, and there would be the good news that they would continue to bring a past historical event, ongoing celebration into their lives. No one else could celebrate it but God's covenant people. And by retelling the story of our salvation, this meal is bringing continually God's past act of deliverance to us in the Lord Jesus Christ into the present. It tells us in every Christian that we were lost in sin and that our Lord Jesus is a God who saves. That's the Lord's Supper. It's why we do it. God's people, since we could argue the time of Passover, have celebrated a meal together that, that acknowledges their need for redemption and that acknowledges that God is a God who saves and a God who rescues, and he does it through a blood sacrifice. And that's the only way he does it. So I start this morning asking you, is Jesus your only hope to be rescued by God? Is, is that what you think of when you think of communion, when you think of the Lord's Supper? Is that what it's all about? It's what it's all about. It's all about announcing the gospel to us, that a salvation exists outside of us in blood and bread. It's a crushed body. It's a crushed fruit of the vine. And that is how our salvation comes to us. It's a rescue from God outside of us. We receive it. But it's God who has set it all up, who's done everything that's required. All we did by his grace is sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of our life to save us from the wrath of God. That's what we do. We hide again. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're hiding ourselves again under the blood of Christ, acknowledging that he and he alone is our Savior. So let's look back then at the Lord's Supper example that Jim read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're not going to reread the whole passage. I just want to point out four things quickly about the practice of the Lord's Supper, how we do it, why we do it, and what should be our focus when we do it. Now, here we have a negative example in the church at Corinth, but we can learn a lot about what should be done from what shouldn't be done. We learn the positive from the negative. And so I want, to, I want, to, I want you to, to notice four quick things here in 1 Corinthians 11 about where we should be focused when we're observing the Lord's Supper together. When we're, when we're taking the Lord's Supper, we should be looking in four directions simultaneously. There's four directions we should be paying attention to. You know, normally we just think there's one. Just be looking at Jesus. And that's certainly primary, but that's not exclusive. All right, the first one, first look is to look around. To look around. When we take the Lord's Supper together, gathered together as a church, we look around at each other. See, this is the part of the problem of what the Corinthians weren't doing. They weren't looking around. They were looking at themselves. They were concerned, preoccupied with themselves. You know, what's a surefire way to ruin a good party? How about this? Show up 
before everyone else, eat all the food and get drunk and cause a lot of problems. That's a surefire way to ruin a party. And this is what these Corinthians are doing. They showed up. They served their own appetites first. They were unconcerned about anything having to do with the Lord's Supper. They were divided from each other. And they entered into that meal with a me-first mentality. Listen, the Lord's Supper is about coming together as a body, healing division, nurturing unity, and cherishing Christ through our care for one another. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. The Lord's Supper is about the church of Christ, loving the church of Christ, nurturing the church, healing division in the church, cherishing and caring for each other in the church. That's what the Corinthians were not doing in verses 17 through 22, which is why Paul says to them, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Because the Lord's Supper, when you celebrate that, it leads you to humble concern for each other. You first, brother. We think about the people who are with us. We think about the people who are not with us. And we look around. We show concern for each other. Second look is you look back. Look at verses 23 to 25. You look back. Verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup, verse 25, said, do this in remembrance of me. So we're looking back. Right? We look back, we think back to that Passover celebration that Jesus had with his first disciples. We look back to what Christ did on the cross. We look back to him laying down his life for us. We look back to him giving up his blood for us. We look back to what he purchased for us in giving himself up for us, namely the forgiveness of all of our sin. And we remember him. That's the backward look. So we're looking around, we're looking back. Number three, we look in. We look in. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So we look in. We make sure we're not approaching this meal, taking this meal in an unworthy manner. Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then. There's a look in. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. So what does it mean to examine yourself? What's it mean to take the cup of the Lord in a worthy manner? Keep reading, verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now this phrase, discerning the body, is a bit debated because it's not clear because Paul talks about at least three different bodies in chapter 11. (laughs) He talks about the body as in the physical body of the person, He talks about the body of Christ as the church, and he talks about Jesus' body. So which is it? I would argue that it doesn't really matter which one it is, that if you're going to take the Lord's Supper properly, you got to think about all those things. You have to think about not just Christ's body, but also the church body. That's what it means to take the the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Listen, the Lord's Supper is not some individualistic thing between you and Jesus. It has everything to do with your relationships, with each other, 
and Jesus. This is why Jesus says, you got a problem with a brother or sister in the body? Go reconcile it before you come to the table. Forgive or have a conversation. And so, looking in, discerning the body, healing division, like I said, making sure that the, 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 that the unity of Christ and, and his people is being reflected in the way in which you're observing the meal. That's what it means to take the, to take the, the cup and the bread in a, in a worthy manner. It means we're thinking rightly about Jesus, we're thinking rightly about our need for him, and we're thinking of our responsibilities to each other. This is why we take the Lord's Supper when we're gathered together. It's not why we take it just when you're individually just out on a you know, vacation somewhere and say, hey, honey, I think we should take the Lord's Supper together today. That's not the, the New Testament pictures a gathering together of all of God's people in the local church to recognize this meal and to celebrate this meal. And this meal is a meal in which our spiritual and relational lives are healed. As we remember our need for Jesus, as we meditate on his mercy and his kindness and compassion to that to us, and then we are moved outward in that same mercy and compassion and love for each other. And so what happens is we come in to the Lord's Supper as me-centered, and then we get transformed by celebrating this meal to being others-centered. And we begin to focus on Jesus and his people. And that's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It's to continually rescue us from our propensity to be selfish. It's to continue, it's given to us as a reminder, hey, this world, you know what it's about? Not you. It's about God and others. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. And aren't we grateful? See why we need to be devoted to it? Do you know why we need to be devoted to it? Because we are hardwired, even with as new, born-again, regenerate people, we are hardwired with selfishness and a, a me-first entitlement mentality. And so what the Lord's Supper does is it's a gift from God to continually reorient us to what life is really all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's why the Lord's Supper is given to us. One more look. We said look around, look back, look inward. One more, look forward. We look forward. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, for the day when there's no need to celebrate this meal anymore. Because in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, there's a greater meal. And it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we get to sit together around... I don't know what that's going to look like. Can you imagine how many tables we're going to need? It's hard. I mean, we have to budget for, you know, a number of seats here in the morning and a certain number of I mean, set up crew, we're going to need your help. <laughs> going to need a lot of tables. How do you put up tables for a, a, a number that no man can number? How do you put up number of tables for that? The Lord Jesus will make it work. And we're going to gather around the table and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and Jesus is going to be the host and the servant and he is going to care for us as his people as we celebrate that final meal together. And this is what we're devoted to. 
In our, in our context, we devote ourselves to it once a month. Bible doesn't subscri- uh, prescribe a certain level of devotion. Some churches do it weekly. I'm thankful for that. I like that. We don't have to do it weekly. Okay? Um, some churches do it quarterly. Some churches do it annually, which I think is problematic. All right? But whatever it is, a church decides how often it's going to do it. Jesus says, as often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. So we've chosen a monthly rhythm. And we do it once a month on a Sunday night, on the first Sunday night of the month. Whole service, because we want to be devoted to it. We want to give it its proper focus and attention that it deserves. Not just run through it and tack it on as one more element of the service, although that's fine too. We do that on the fifth Sunday morning of every month. Or every quarter. So once a quarter, we get a fifth Sunday. And in that, on that Sunday, we, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together in the morning. Gives us a different take on it. It's wonderful. It's a different aspect of it. But the point is, is when we do it, we want you there. Because that's what it means to be devoted. It means to be devoted to the Lord's Supper. We do it because the early church did it, and that's what God wants us to do. Jesus said, do this. That should be enough for us. Do this. Do it. And so we want to do it, and we want you to do it with us. So whenever we're doing it, come do it. Look around with us. Look back with us. Look in with us, and look forward with us. And we're going to do it until he comes. Because that's what God's people do. God's people celebrate God's meal. And so we want you there. Number two, so that's the Lord's Supper, devoted to the Lord's Supper. Let's talk about what it means to be devoted to hospitality this more informal aspect of breaking of bread. So we could say there's a formal aspect to breaking bread, the Lord's suppers, the church gathers together, and then there's a more informal, kind of everyday, hey, come on over, let's eat together. Have you ever thought about what Jesus did? Think about this. How did Jesus do ministry? You know, I just want you next time that you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, to just use this as a filter as you're going through it. And make a note of every time Jesus is eating food. When Jesus arrives on the scene of history in the New Testament Gospels, food and eating do not become less important in the biblical story. They become more important. The New Testament completes the sentence... The Son of Man came in three ways. Do you know what those three ways are? The Son of Man came to seek and to what? Save the, to seek and to save the lost. That's one way. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the third is, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, if he came eating and drinking, do you think that's part of his serving and seeking and saving? If Jesus made eating and drinking with people so central to his life and ministry, if we're following him, will our lives look something like that? I think so. It is staggering, if you read the Gospels, it is staggering how often Jesus is found eating meals. 
In fact, it can be said that during most of Jesus' ministry, he was either headed to a meal, eating a meal, or leaving a meal. Notice that. This is why he got branded a drunkard and a glutton. People called him that. Because as he went around, all they ever saw him was eating with people or going to eat with people or leaving from eating with people. It's like, does this guy do anything but eat? And his answer would be, no. No. And he walks a lot, so he doesn't gain a lot of weight. Burning it all off between meals. Think about this. Luke chapter 5 has him eating at a banquet in the house of Levi. Luke chapter 7 has him in a dinner in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Luke chapter 9, Jesus is providing a meal and feeding thousands at Bethsaida. Luke chapter 10, he's enjoying hospitality at the home of Mary and Martha. Luke chapter 19, he's at the home of Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 11 he's di- and 14, he's dining at the home of Pharisees. And Luke 24, he's eating the Last Supper with his disciples. It's all over the Gospel of Luke. Jesus' mission was built around hospitality and table fellowship. And if it was true in Jesus' time, this is why the first century church did it. You know why verse 46 of Acts chapter 2, where it says they were day by day attending the temple course together and breaking bread from house to house, you know why they did it? Because that's what their Savior did. It's what Jesus does. We're Jesus people. We eat together. It ought to be true of our fellowships today. If it's true in Jesus' time, it's true in the first century, it should be true in our time today. Hospitality is, I would call, not just an a nice thing that a church does, but essential, essential to the life of a church. It is really, really, really important. It's so important that not only do we have the example of Jesus and the example of the early church, but we have commands to do it to one another, to show it to one another. And I'm going to show you some of those commands in just a moment. So hospitality, what is it? What is it? It's a combination of two words, means love of strangers, stranger love. It's not your family getting together, although that's precious. It's not your friends getting together, although that's precious. It's you getting together and eating meals with people you don't know very well in order to get to know them better. That's hospitality. You notice a little word hospital built in there? Hospitality. We care for one another. We nurse each other back to health through this practice. We show love to to strangers. That's what hospitals do. They don't know half the people coming in there. I mean, those of you who work in the the fields. My brother John, he doesn't know half the people he's putting to sleep. He's just loving them, right? So the doctor can work on them and get them, nurse them back to health. He's stranger loving. They may not consider it love but they appreciate not being awake for it, I guarantee that. So hospitality is just that. It's showing love for strangers. And and think about, why do we do this? Why do we show love to strangers? Because this is the gospel. This is what God does for us. We're strangers to Him. That's what Ephesians 2 calls us. Strangers. And He loved us. He served us. He opened his heart and his home to us. 
and welcomed us in. Revelation 3.20, which I know is used as an evangelistic verse, and it's fine with that application, but it's primarily talking about the church. What does Jesus say in Revelation 3.20? That he desires to come in and eat with us. And God's hospitality towards us is the foundation and motivation for our hospitality towards others. God loves strangers. God's people love strangers. That's the way it's supposed to be. We open our homes and our hearts to each other. Romans chapter 15, verse 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. See? What motivates our welcome for each other? What motivates so that we send up, we've got that welcome mat out front. What opens that door to strangers? The fact that God opened the door for us. Said welcome. Says welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. You want to know where the glory of God is? Where's the glory of God? Come in, have a meal. Welcome. There's the glory of God. Do you think about that? Or do you just think, no, when a thousand people are falling on their faces, that's the glory of God. No, the glory of God is one Christian extending to another Christian a welcome in Jesus' name. The glory of God is present. In every church where we welcome one another into our reality, our space, our hearts, with the gracious welcome of Jesus, the glory of God is on display. Oh, we, are we jealous for the glory of God? Then we must be jealous for hospitality. Every church sends a message through how they welcome and treat their guests. Those with no strategy send the loudest message. We're not a hospitable people. If we're not a welcoming people, if we're not a loving people, which by the way, if you're a guest with us, we're striving to be. We're striving to be a welcoming, gracious people. But if we are not that way, we are sending a message. And you know what message we're sending? What we believe has not impacted how we treat you. Not to be hospitable is a lie about God. It lies about the gospel. It's a false gospel. It presents an anti-gospel. You could put the gospel in your mouth and share it all day long. But if you're not welcoming and loving and others-oriented and, and inconveniencing yourself for the sake of others, it doesn't matter what you say. It's preaching a false gospel. Not to be hospitable is to prove the message of grace has not impacted the totality of our church. Now think about this. Have you ever felt like you don't belong? You felt like you, had, you don't fit in? Well, how does Jesus fix that problem? Jesus creates community through love. Jesus came to start a community with us while we were still sinners. Jesus initiates. Jesus doesn't wait on sinners to come to him. He goes and gets the sinners. He goes and gets us. He pursues us. Jesus doesn't just talk about a community. He creates community through humble, self-sacrificial love. Maybe we have been waiting for the perfect community. While we've been waiting for the perfect relationships and friends, maybe God is calling us to create them. To create the community you long for. It's created by your initiatory love. 
we can sit around and say how we don't fit in. There's nobody that really gets us and there's no place we belong. Or, well, you could sit there and be that way or you could be like Jesus and initiate to people and create love through community. Just go love people. That's how community gets created. Love creates community. Love creates community, not the other way around. You won't get community unless you love. You can't get it any other way. Paul Miller writes, intimacy and community come from love, not the other way around. So instead of pursuing intimacy, we should pursue love. Only then do we discover intimacy, end quote. When we love, we receive community. When we seek to know others, we eventually will be known. Our soul is filled by emptying it out into others. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So this is why we have hospitality, so that we might extend welcome and that others might extend welcome and thereby show the glory of God. This is why we have hospitality commands in the scriptures. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You ever think about this in the context of Romans 12? This command comes in a list of all kinds of commands about loving But you remember chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the beginning of this chapter, this this command occurs in verse 13. At the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God based upon the mercies he has extended to us. So Romans chapter 1 through 11 is all about God's gracious activity to save us. Romans chapter 12, in light of all that, show hospitality to people. Show hospitality to each other. You distinguish yourself from the world in this way. You show yourself as God's people this way. You offer your body as a living sacrifice. You ever thought about that? You ever include in your definition of offering your body as a living sacrifice the practice of hospitality? You should. Paul does. The Holy Spirit does. Factor that in. The one of the ways I offer my body as a living sacrifice to God is by offering welcome in Jesus' name to other people. And this is why this practice of hospitality is to characterize the church, so much so that leaders are disqualified if they don't do it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Titus chapter 1, verse 8, puts an elder being hospitable as a a qualification. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 10, says that older people in the congregation are to set this example for younger people in the congregation. So elders and older members, men and women, are called to set an example for the church in the practice of hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And then finally, 1 Peter 4, 9, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we don't grumble about it. Oh, got to do it, got to do it. No, we do it in part because it's a command, but also because it's an aspect of what God has done for us in Christ. In the broader context, Peter reminds us that the end of all things is near. It's a statement that begs the question, if the end is coming, what are we we supposed to do about it? Well, Peter says, above all, love one another deeply. You say, how do you do that? 
1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another. It's one of the ways we love one another deeply. It's one of the things that end times people do. And we're living in those times. Ever since, because the end times are not just some unique, special 36.5 year period right before Jesus comes back. The end times are the time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And we're living in those days. And so we show hospitality to one another. I don't know. Have you ever thought about that? See, Christianity is, it takes us out of our extremism and puts us in the real world. It's like we tend to think about you know, these big, grandiose things when we think about the glory of God. God just ties it to being welcoming. We tend, when the end of all things is near, what are we supposed to do? Peter says, just have each other over. If someone were to say to me, the end of the world is very soon, what are you going to do? Peter says, just have somebody over for dinner. Would those be the first words out of your mouth? Those are the first words out of Peter's mouth. So you see how central hospitality is, just breaking bread together, enjoying meals. So I want to conclude with just a couple of applications here related to hospitality. And these have, these have to do more generally. They're not limited to this. But the, the first thing would just be greeting each other, just like I said a couple of Sundays ago, I think. But just saying hi. When we're getting ready, we're getting ready to wrap up. Okay, we're almost done. Would you talk to somebody you don't know? Would you make it a point to just talk to somebody? Just say, hi, hey, I don't think I've met you yet. Um, would, did you give me your name, and do you have lunch plans? Is that bad? Okay, if you can't do it today, set up one for the future. Okay? Just greet each other. And there is so much health that comes to a church when people say, Hi, my name is, would you like to have lunch? Also, when people are sick or had a baby or coming out of a funeral, and you all do so well with this, you beat people to it. I do check on you, but it's almost always filled within the first hour. I'll tell you what, this is one of the ways the Spirit is at work, and I can tell with, with people who are, who are uh, we, growing in hospitality, is when there's a need for food or something, that thing's gone. You've got to beat people to that in our church. It's hard to get a meal to somebody quickly. But sign up for those things. When those food tidings things stroll across the email to bring meals to people, that's a form of hospitality. It, it, it is. It's, it's a way to contribute to the needs of the saints. Invite people into your community group. If any community groups are staying after today, invite people. Come over. We promise not to be cliquish. We won't ignore you. Okay? And we also won't make you central and put you on the spot and make you say everything. So just come. Have a meal together. Invite people in to do that. The other thing about this, pray for people as you're coming on the property. As you're driving in, pray that people who are not a part of our community, who are coming into our community today, would feel welcome. Uh, how about this? Park on the side or in the back. Park away. Give people space. That's hospitality, right? Uh, here, can, I, can I get real metal here a little bit? I'm going to metal just a little bit. Okay, here's one of the ways you can practice hospitality more faithfully. Sit up front as close as you can, as possible. I know that's, I know that's tough. All right, I'm going to take a little, pick up your cross and follow me. Come on. We're going, to, we're going to go a little bit deeper. Sit in the middle. Gary Boswell is thanking me right now. He's appreciating this application. <laughs> Gary wants to be hospitable, and what, but you've got to find seats. 
and sit closely to each other. Don't leave a space. That man, that's, that's threefold right there. That's tough. Sit close to the front, in the middle, and don't leave spaces. But you know what that does? It offers hospitality to guests. If you're a long-term member and you come in and you sit on the aisles in the back, I'm not criticizing people right now, okay? Don't, don't, don't hear this. I just want you to think differently, okay? I want you to think for people who aren't here, who we want to be here, and we want to make it easy for them. And so um, sit, do that. Do, think about it when you park. Think about it when you, who you talk to after the th- service. Think about for, for where you sit in the service. It's all hospitality. It's all caring for people. Nothing is, in, nothing is not important. Nothing is no, of no concern to God. All those little things say, we want you here. We care for you here. We desire your presence. So those are a few ways to do hospitality. Why do we do that? Why do we offer our bodies as living sacrifices in those ways? Because we want people to meet the gracious welcome of God that we've received. That's why. We want people to receive the welcome from God that we ourselves has received from the time they walk into this door to the time they leave or the time that they're around our dinner table to the time they say, goodbye, have a nice night. That's what we want to do. And we want to be devoted to that for God's glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time in your word today to consider these practical, practical matters from your word uh, concerning what it means to be devoted to the breaking of bread. So God, help us in these ways to grow. Thank you that we do this. We grow in this way, not to receive welcome from you, but because we have received welcome from you. We, we pursue this life, this hospitable thing, this hospitable life because of the hospitality that we receive every day from your kind hand, all the provision that you make for us, all the ways you care for us, all the ways that you welcome us in. And what, what greater meal could we be devoted to, Lord, than to, to remember Jesus' death, to be called upon to think about what our Savior did for us. Is there a greater privilege in the world than that? So help us to esteem it as such and to count it as such and to do it until you come. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise.
Well, the next time we are around the table of the King will be our Good Friday service, March 30th. Um, if you don't have any plans, you're in town before spring break, March 30th, Friday night, 6 o'clock here. We'll be doing a joint Good Friday service with um, Gospel Community Church and Garden Green Baptist Church, and hope you can join us for that. Also, we have our midweek meal and prayer meeting and Heritage Kids and Nursery this Wednesday night beginning at 530 so let me conclude by giving you this benediction from the book of Romans that we read earlier, Romans chapter 15. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And let's do that now. Go with God's blessing.